Martin Paris here. I'm a tech contributor at Forbes and excited to be on stage today with Marquez Brownlee. Um, Marquez is widely known as one of the uh, foremost tech reviewers. Uh, he was named uh, Forbes 30 Under 30 in 2021 and had his fashion debut at the Met Gala last year. <laughs> Pretty cool. He's also one of the few tech reviewers that has interviewed nearly all of the tech billionaires, from Elon Musk to Mark Zuckerberg to Bill Gates. Uh, so it's thrilling to have him on stage here with us. And joining him is Jeremy Legg, Chief Technology Officer at AT&T, who has spent the majority of his career in the entertainment industry uh, deploying transformative technology. So it's really great to be here with you guys today. Yeah. It's 2023. Um, <laughs> and uh, my first question is, um, Jeremy, everything depends on the network. Please give us an update as to what's going on with the rollout of 5G and what type of exciting experiences we can expect to see from it. Sure, sure, no, have to. You're going to get me in the Met Gala next year, though, for my fashion. I will attempt. You'll attempt. All right, attempt. thank you. You may have to pull some strings. I yeah. think. Um, the, uh, the mobility industry and, and 5G uh, being the latest iteration of the technology generally come in about 10 to 15 year cycles, um, but telling the time that the standards are set and the deployments occur. And so we're you know, really about three to four years into that cycle. And so the first thing that a lot of you probably experienced was you had to buy a new phone because you needed a new chipset inside of the phone, so you had to get a 5G chip. But other than expanded bandwidth, you haven't seen a lot of the new services that are going to be coming out over the course of the next several years as the technology evolves. So the first thing is uh, C-band and the deployment of C-band, which for any uh, uh, tech geeks out there, this is 3.4, 3.5 on the spectrum. And what that enables is a much fatter pipe going to a mobility phone. And so you know, we're seeing increases in consumption of 2x just because the speeds are faster and people are browsing more, they're watching more video. As you begin to see the next iterations of this technology, you're gonna be seeing things like custom networks that are dedicated to particular industries, whether it be healthcare or automobiles. You're gonna see the ability to download and upload things faster you know, through boosts of bandwidth or boosts of prioritized routing. There's a whole series of these things that will be coming out over the course of the next several years, but a lot of the deployment of the technology uh, is going to take some time. It's 80,000 cell towers in the domestic United States, and all that goes down into a wire um, at the tower, and so there's millions of miles of fiber that have to be laid on top of that. I understand some of the concerns have to do with um, getting the towers in uh, hard-to-reach rural areas. Um, and that a lot of autonomous uh, vehicle deployment is kind of um, pegged along that. Can you speak to uh, how the network is supporting autonomy uh, for vehicles, like trucking? Sure. I mean, it, uh, in rural areas, there's a whole variety of challenges. They may have no connectivity at all. And right. so, you know, one of the things we're focused on is the digital divide. You may have seen the, the Biden infrastructure bill and a lot of the dollars that are coming down to solve a lot of those problems that will then enable much broader deployments of connectivity in rural areas. The practical implication to an autonomous vehicle or an autonomous you know, truck 
is, you know, you don't want to have the truck without connectivity. You don't want to have the truck with low latency. And so those have to get deployed across our federal highway systems, our state highway systems, in order to completely enable these things. So you're, you're from San Francisco, you're going to see a lot of that in the city of San Francisco first, you probably already do, mm -hmm. but in terms of you know, transcontinental types of things, there's more infrastructure that has to be deployed. What type of support are you getting from the U.S. government? So the, the federal government um, has appropriated $43 billion um, to build out additional broadband infrastructure across the United States. That's nothing specific to AT&T, that's going to be across the broader industry. And then chunks of those dollars go to different states that help determine where they're going to spend those dollars in order to close the digital divide, but also help industry. So we're in the process right now, those state allocations just came out quite recently, I believe it was just in the last two or three days, where some of the initial um, uh, deployments of that capital goes out. We then go into a bidding process for that in order to enable uh, us to garner some of those dollars to wire places that wouldn't otherwise be profitable. Um, but there's a lot of money flowing in this space. There's federal money, there's corporate money, there's private equity money. And we are at a generational shift in terms of fiber and, and 5G technology going into the ground and going up on towers. You know, while we're talking about automotive, I mean, obviously Marquez is known for his EV videos, just released an incredible one on supercharging. Marquez, can you uh, tell us a little bit about how uh, 5G is going to help with adoption of electric vehicles? I mean, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm, we're all on the earliest end of the curve for a lot of tech, and 5G is one of them, and EVs is another one of them. And uh, I'm always impressed by how much the infrastructure matters to the adoption of it. So I've talked about charging as one of these things, right. where the electric cars are getting better and better. Lots of things we like about cars are better in electric cars. They're quieter, they're smoother, they're faster, all these great things. They're cleaner. They're cleaner, all these things. But I always have a hard time recommending them because the last step of the puzzle is that sort of worry-free driving where what do you do when you run out of a charge isn't that much of a concern. There's a gas station everywhere for a gas car. Um, but the infrastructure, the charging infrastructure is actually genuinely the hardest part, the last part to fix for the adoption of electric cars. I think 5G is another one. Obviously, they all need to be connected, and if they're processing a lot of data and potentially talking to each other, I heard that was a possibility as well. Crash avoidance. Constantly. All these types yeah. of things would benefit from higher latency or lower latency, faster connections between the cars, things like that. So obviously, infrastructure feels very underrated on my channels because I like to talk about the finished product. Here's how it is to drive. Here's how, it, how many miles it gets and things like that but I'm always thinking about uh, sort of behind the scenes that makes it possible. Just a couple of questions along these lines. Is that there's some, been some news, right? Volvo has adopted um, yeah. you know, the Tesla supercharging standard. Uh, talk to us a little bit about you know, what we can expect to see in the rollout of supercharging, um, just so that we can get a sense of you know, how soon are we gonna get to you know, a more carbon friendly uh, highway system. Yeah, so it, it's been really interesting to sort of see the dominoes fall. So we've had, it, this is a more of a US-based thing, but Tesla has their charging standard, NACS, North American Charging Standard. That's one plug. And then everyone else has all of the other plugs, CCS being the most popular of those. And uh, I did a road trip sort of testing the back-to-backs, and Tesla's supercharger network is incredibly reliable and really easy to use. The other public networks 
are very common, but not always working, not always easy to use. And so that was a challenge for those cars. And so this, the news that you're referring to, what is happening is uh, a lot of companies have just recently started to sign deals with Tesla to start putting the NACS Tesla port in their cars and give them access to Tesla's massive, reliable, easy to use supercharger network. I think that's a win for everyone involved. That makes the cars better because they have way more chargers to choose from that are constantly working. Um, and as far as the timeline, you know, a lot of them have, have said 2025 is when they want to start actually putting the port in their cars. And I think that's when we'll start seeing Ford, GM, Rivian, Volvo's on the list now. Mm -hmm. And that will start to be really, Hyundai? really interesting. Hyundai, I think, is in talks. We'll probably see that domino fall soon. Um, but yeah, in the US and North America, that is a huge leap forward for all electric cars. You know, the smart cars, they're like computers and they're run by software. Yeah. How concerned are you? I, I understand a lot of the processing is on the device, is on the car. But how concerned are you about like cybersecurity risks? privacy risk, hacking, location tracking, um, and, and, and how much do you see the network actually helping with this? I, that's a great question. I think you can probably speak to this too, but when I talk about everything being a computer now, there is an inherent additional risk to everything being connected. Uh, and I think that risk has to be weighed on by these companies. One of the biggest questions I've asked in my videos about these electric cars is, why is the software all so bad? Yeah. <laughs> and it's because we're asking Ford and GM and all these companies to become a software company right. in addition to a car company, and that's really hard. So there is additional risk, but I think network built-in uh, security and things like that can also help mitigate that risk. So we know they're all gonna be computers. We can just start to get in front of that risk as we start to go down that road. Yeah, I, I think it, it, there's a host of things that are happening in this area. Um, a lot of the automobile industry doesn't really have an over-the-air software update capability. Um, you know, many of the many of the uh, new manufacturers don't have that, and so they rely on a smartphone as sort of a transport mechanism yep. in order to get software from the phone onto the car. And so, on the inbound side, you're opening up these vehicles to incredible cybersecurity risks because you're uploading things into it from another device. Mm. But then at the same time you have downstream things when the car is driving, it's constantly on a network, and so you have embedded, you know, bad, I'll just call them generally bad guys that are trying to get into the cars. And so we've done some things, for example, where we were working with an auto manufacturer and we use some of our embedded network security technology and we found that a couple percent of their fleet had actually been turned into Bitcoin miners. So, you know, you're, you are driving a hard drive, you're driving a computer chip, you're, you're driving a firmware, you're driving a computer. Mm -hmm. And so the kinds of things that we're trying to do to enable the auto industry, you know, we have, you know, probably 80-ish percent of the domestic auto industry on, on uh, AT&T's connectivity, is to actually embed the cybersecurity tools into the network itself. Yeah. So, you know, you have endpoint security where, you know, on your computer or your car, you're going to install, you know, malware detection or, you know, those kinds of things. You have firewalls which try and keep the bad guys out. But there's actually not much at the headwaters of the network, at the headwaters of the river, to keep the bad guys from being able to ever get to the firewall or the car. So one of the things that we're doing is beginning to instrument the internet peering points as well as the last mile oh. routing centers so that you can actually detect these anomalies using artificial intelligence as well as other means 
and then you can actually remediate it before it ever hits the vehicle. And so, you know, your folks are going to want those kinds of capabilities, not just from us, but from other carriers as well, in order to feel safe in their cars. You know, if you're, you know, who wants to do a remote software update when you're out in the middle of nowhere? Right. So, the, you know, these are real issues that uh, the industry is going to have to confront, but, you know, we're building out that network so that the, uh, those electric vehicles will have these capabilities. You know, uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote an article for VentureBeat on botnets attacking um, the weakest point in your home network for your smart appliances. So literally creating a botnet out of your smart toaster, your smart refrigerator. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like you know, with the new connectivity coming online, that AT&T may be able to protect the consumer even in the home network, is that uh, right? Ultimately, yes, we'll be able to do that. And you know, one of the, the issues with, these are sort of internet of things right. kinds of devices, so they generally have pretty low power chips on them, yeah. but they are connected to your home network, and so a bad guy can jump from that device onto your home network. And they generally don't have a lot of security baked into them because they're trying to keep the cost of the device low. So the solution there is not so much to try and put a hard drive in your toaster so that you can have right. you know, more software powers to clean the network before it ever gets to the toaster or the refrigerator or the you know, washing machine, whatever it might be. So think of it as kind of clean pipes, right? So you're, right. you're, you're cleansing the water as it's going, going down the river to keep all the bad stuff out. One of the things hitting home uh, might be uh, Apple's new spatial computing platform for mobile VR and AR. Um, Marquez, you had an opportunity to go hands-on with Apple's Vision Pro, did some amazing videos um, about your thoughts. Can you share uh, your insights with us in terms of, do you see this spatial computing space as an opportunity for developers to create killer apps? Um, that's going to get us to the next stage? Love your thoughts. That is a, that's a golden question. Yeah, uh, yeah I, so I did get to try Apple's Vision Pro, and I've tried a lot of other VR and AR products, and there's a couple really interesting things about it. Uh, I think everyone universally who tried it was very impressed by the tech itself. Yeah. Uh, the eye tracking, the, the hand tracking, you look at a subject on the screen and touch your fingers together and it's selected. All these things actually worked and that was very impressive. And I think everyone who didn't try it is much more focused on the other question, which is this is $3,500 and it's going to be sold in stores. Why would I buy it? What is it for? And that yeah, is yeah, a but, question. But it's really $3,500 for the developer unit, isn't it? Well, this one will be sold, so anyone can buy it. Yeah. But I think it, it kind of acts like a developer unit because mm -hmm. they announced it at this past WWDC, but as they mentioned, it won't come out until early next year. Right. And the, the reason for that huge gap is because they're going to be in the hands of developers. The SDK just came out last week, right. and now they can start making their apps for the Vision Pro so that by the time it comes out next year, there is a whole wealth of apps for it. It kind of reminds me of the first iPhone moment. I remember it being yeah. that AT&T thing oh, where yeah. like the first iPhone didn't have an app store, but they sort of put it out into the world and the story got written and two or three years later, suddenly it's this vibrant ecosystem. I think they realized the power of developers in like making something like this happen. So I think there will be a killer app somewhere. We just don't know what it is yet. Okay, well, Apple showed us a lot of potential applications. One that excited me most seemed to be most applicable to enterprise and that is you sit down with your headset, but you get 15 screens up. 
And I, you know, last year I spent all my time on a Bloomberg terminal. I was a reporter for Bloomberg. Um, I thought that's an incredible application to have so many screens up. What, what most excited you as to what you saw in terms of potential applications? I really liked, uh, I liked that. I like the fact that it is plugged in so well to the ecosystem that you can do something like look at your Mac and the Mac screen will pop out of it and suddenly you're using your Mac and it'll have yeah. pass through for your keyboard and your mouse. That would be cool to be able to take a, a large screen with me and edit on Final Cut Pro on, on a train. You know, that's the type of thing it unlocks. So I thought that was really cool. But the one demo that I was most impressed by that I think I would do now is a courtside sports experience. Yeah, oh, yeah. I can see So there that. was one where uh, they just put you like literally courtside at an NBA game, actually behind the backboard, and you literally just watch the game in front of you. And it's not like a, like a video game type quality or something like that. You're watching footage. And you can generally like look around, look at the stadium, feel the vibes yeah. and the atmosphere, and watch the game. And it sounds silly to say it on stage, because you can't like see what I was seeing, but in the headset and watching it with full immersion, I thought, yeah, I would do this again. Let me ask you something. The one thing that occurred to me was eye strain. Apple actually talked about monitoring for eye strain, yeah. but the headset, you know, how heavy is it? How tired are you going to get? What about eye fatigue? Um, yeah. How are they going to mitigate for that? I understand it only has like two hour battery life, so maybe it's not an issue. Yeah. But, um, yeah, what are your thoughts on like, is it gonna, are we going to get down to a spatial computing platform um, where it's just maybe a film on anybody's eyeglasses? That's what I'm thinking maybe as yeah. the ultimate device. What do you think? That's a fantastic question. Okay, so first on uh, that, it was hilarious for them to go right from don't look at the iPad too close to your face for too long <laughs> to <laughs> here's the thing you strap to your face. But yeah, two hour battery life, but you can plug it into a wall and use it indefinitely if you want to. Uh, then you're tethered. And yeah, you can watch a movie. You can, you can just stay in that thing all day long. But it was heavy. And I did feel like after, like, I had it for half an hour before I took it off. And it was relieving to take it off. It was pretty, pretty weighty. So I imagine people wouldn't want to spend hours in it. But the, the second half of your question, yeah, the vision for the future of this platform is not a big, bulky headset. It's what's the iPhone 10 going to look like when we're at iPhone 1 now? I think in 10 years, they think something much smaller much lighter, potentially transparent, much more easy to use for a long time. And so they want us to get used to wearing it now so that when it is lighter and smaller, we have no problem with it. Right, but don't call it a headset. Jeremy, <laughs> <laughs> that's Apple's words, not mine. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy, how, how is the network um, getting ready to support the advent of mobile AR, VR, even if not in its current um, environment with these yeah. heavy headsets, but in the future environment when all of us have a film on our eyeglasses and we don't look like we're wearing Google Glass. Yeah, there's a, a, a two primary considerations there. One is, is you know, the, the new Apple, you know, the new Apple goggles headset are based on Wi-Fi. Right. Um, and so they are not yet, you know, tying it into a cellular network, which really becomes a totally different set of technologies. So the mobility of it, you know, is primarily going to be used in the house. Right. The solutions that sit on the back end of that are fiber, right? This is fiber optic, passive optical network technology where you can get multi-gig speeds bi-directionally. And that's one of the things that's really important. It's not just the download speed, it's the upload speed from these as there's going to be so much collaboration that's occurring that you need consistency in the speed direction in order to really use these devices. Mm -hmm. There will be other things inside of the home within a router as an example 
where there's going to be different kinds of channel bonding, which basically means if, if your bandwidth constrained on one channel on your router, you can bond another channel to it in order to increase the amount of bandwidth that one particular device is getting. Mm -hmm. So those are actually all things that exist today. It's, it's mostly just a matter of how quickly they're being rolled out across the country. The cellular solutions, when you start getting into eSIM cards and you want the ability to walk around the city or you know, visit friends or you know, other things, that becomes a different equation because you're dealing with spectrum. And spectrum, you know, whereas I don't want to say fiber optics is infinite speeds, but it's as close as you're going to get, uh, spectrum is limited, right? And so there's only so much bandwidth that you can optimize on any given cell tower at any given time. So the question on the mobility side actually switches a little bit from how much computing power do you want to put in the device itself so that it's computing, you know, literally right, you know, on your face versus putting it back in the network right. and doing the computing, you know, back in the network. And that had, drives a lot of how much spectrum you're going to end up using, you know, from one of these devices. It's obviously faster and safer on the device. It, well, not necessarily. I mean, it, 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 it's really actually more of a cost equation. Mm. So, you know, part of the reason, I don't know all of Apple's reasons, but part of the reason that that device is so incredible in terms of the tech that's in it is because they put all the chips and the cameras and everything right, right. in the device. That's right, right. Um, the downside, the upside of that is, is you have the computing local. The downside is, is that they're very expensive because you've got to use a lot of technology embedded into the device itself. So I think there's going to be a mix of these things that happen over time. Okay, so I've saved the best category for last. Obviously, I'm an AI reporter. Um, you know, we're at a pivotal moment in time uh, with the advent of generative AI. ChatGPT, I think, just celebrated what its six-month anniversary. <laughs> That's it. Wow. Um, <laughs> you know, it's longer. Wow. It, it takes up an enormous amount of computing power. You know, how are you preparing the network for? you know, just massive deployment of generative AI. I know that AT&T has rolled out its own suite of generative AI tools. You're showing some productivity gains. Can you share with us some of your experience with it? Sure. Um, I, you know, we've been involved in AI for a long time. We're, we're one of the larger holders of patents in that space. Mm -hmm. And so I've watched this technology for quite some time evolve. I think the thing that's so different, I'm oversimplifying, but it's basically true that's so different about generative AI is that its starting point is everything that's on the internet. So its base of knowledge in terms of, you don't have to teach it as much as, as other forms of AI because it's starting with a, a, such a high level of foundational knowledge. The thing that that does... Well, well it's, it, it's depending on what set it's training on, but yes, right. Yeah, yeah. It, it does, but it has the models have largely been trained on that corpus of the internet. So the thing that actually becomes so fascinating with it is that it becomes the information and the data that's not on the internet that is actually where the unique applications are yeah. going to be. Because I personally think what's going to happen here is you're going to have, I don't want to call it proprietary AI, but you know, the Googles and Microsofts that have, that have gotten most of the initial press on this. But the open source community is getting very big in this. Yeah. Um, and I think open source is going to yeah. rise um, and, you know, you're, we're all going to be in a situation where you're going to have to have applications on this that are interoperable with multiple kinds of AI, not just one, even though chat gets the most press. The things that we're using, you know, internally, uh, you know, whether it's code conversion, 
uh, whether it's code enhancement, you know, we're seeing productivity gains ranging between 20 and 50 percent um, for what we're for what our developers are doing. Yeah. But we're also seeing things that are that are remarkable. I mean, we've already deployed it in call centers, and it's making sales for us. Um, you know, you can feed all of your contracts into it, and then begin to think through. You uh, you were you know, explaining to us on a call yeah. um, that. Gen AI sold <laughs> sold something for like a, a fraction of the cost that it would have taken a human to have, to have sold the service. Yeah. I think it was like an international day pass or something on the network, um, and that you know the customer was on and off within seconds, and you had a done deal. You want to share that with us? Yeah, we we did do that. It was really it was one of the first uses we saw, and and that that we fed all of our rate plans, all of our proprietary information around international travel and. Yeah. all plans, et cetera. And as the consumer was, at, this was over chat, but as the consumer was asking for different options, the AI figured out what they really wanted. And then at the end, made a sale for us associated with this. And you know, the cost reductions, it, it's whatever the computing power was in the public cloud to essentially serve that customer versus having a human call center agent try and sell that. And so it's a dramatic cost savings I mean, you had given some numbers. Was it five dollars versus ten cents? Am I remembering that yeah, correctly? Ballpark. Don't Amazing. don't quote me exactly, but yeah, it's in that range. Yeah. All right. Well, Mark has the magic question. So, you know, what do you see as the promise and peril of AI? There's been a lot of discussion on both sides of the coin: revolutionary, destructive, existential threat, great tool. Yeah. You know, what are your thoughts on the matter? So I'm a, I'm a, I think one of the most common questions is, is my job safe? And uh, as someone who makes a lot of uh, creative videos, I like to think my job is safe. Yeah, right. What I've actually found really interesting is uh, the collaboration between people and AI can be really, really valuable. So not necessarily replacing the person with AI. I don't think you could replace me with AI and do the same YouTube videos, but I have been using a lot of tools to help brainstorm things, and I have been using a lot of tools to help refine things like video scripts and ideas and content strategy and even things like that that I would have never thought of. And it led me kind of down the path of just thinking that in the past 10, 15, 20 years when the skill that most of us have developed for searching the internet is like basically prompt engineering, like figuring out what do I type into google.com to find what I want? Do I add this term to the end? Do I use these sets of modifiers? How do I find this thing? And uh, the more I think about it, the more I feel like we're kind of finally at a shifting point where I think most people are going to need to learn how to get AI to work with them to do what they want to do. So I've been playing with ChatGPT and then Bing Search and all these and Bard just to try to figure out like, all right, what do I type into this box to help it work with me to make something that I actually want? You know, what really freaked me out is um, Reid Hoffman and Mustafa Suleiman have released Pi for their new startup, Inflection AI. And so I decided to include Pi in my query about, you know, can you give me a healthy meal plan for 1,200 calories? ChatGPT was like, no problem, two seconds. Bard was even faster and stuck to the 1,200 calories. Pi gave me pushback. Pi was like, that's not healthy. <laughs> that's too low. Hmm. And wouldn't give, me, wouldn't give me the plan. I had to like prompt it along. Yeah. And the next, oh, so anyway, it wound up giving me like a meal plan for 1,350 calories, something like that. I was going to delete it. 
I was like, what's this attitude? Why is it giving me ego? But the next day it checked in on me. Wow. So it's a freaky AI. You should check out Pi. See if you like it. I don't like its attitude. So I, th I like ChatGPT more, but. Yeah. Um, okay, so final question. We return here a year from now. What is the world gonna look like <laughs> with the rollout of 5G, with autonomous vehicles? Again, I live in San Francisco where there are more driverless cars on the road than people. It's true. Um, you know, with, with Gen AI, what, what is the world gonna look like? Jeremy? You know, I, look, that, that's a question I think everyone wants to know the answer, and I may have an unsatisfying one. I mean, here's what I can say is that uh, I believe this tech is very real. I believe uh, that not just Gen AI, but other forms of AI combined with it is going to create one of those, you know, seminal moments in technology that begins to shift society and culture. And it's happening, you know, you can go back to the internet or the iPhone or, you know, other, other moments where we saw these kinds of shifts. I think we're in the middle of one right now. And the thing that is, I think, the most interesting about this one in particular is that it's going to affect all industries, not just one. It's going to affect all people, not just specific sets of people. And the pace at which it is changing is dramatic. So if you look at, you know, the things that have happened with ChatGPT or BARD, the releases that they're that they're sending out from you know 3.0 to 3.5 to 4.0 are profoundly more intelligent, and this is just over a period of months. Right. So uh, I think that you know the the thing that that is most important, given that mapping where this is all going is really difficult, is that the corporations that are using this tech have to put some guardrails around it to keep both their proprietary, proprietary information safe, but also to make sure that these things aren't abused. And governments and public-private partnerships are gonna be part of what you know, ultimately helps this land in a good place. But in the near term, it's happening so fast that we've gotta do some self-governance in the near term, which is something that we're big proponents of. What are you most excited about in your household? What are you looking forward to playing around with? Oh my goodness, a lot of the video generation, photo generation, you know, all those kinds of things are just, you know, they're just awesome to go and play with. So it's, it's, it's great stuff. Marquez, man of the hour. I'm sorry, Jeremy, you're great too, but I mean, it's Marquez. I know, I don't have, I wasn't at the Met Gala. <laughs> <laughs> Marquez, your vision for what life is gonna look like a year from now, and you can go ahead and give us the next five to 10 years, because that vision would be really helpful wow. too. I, well, I'll preface. You've seen the future, haven't you? I, this, the thing is, I'll preface this by saying, anytime I have ever been asked to predict the future, what, what is things gonna be like in five, 10 years? I've always been wrong, mm -hmm. always. So it's almost impossible to know. But a couple of things I agree with what you said, like AI is going to affect every industry, I think, and that's a good thing. Uh, just if, if we look at it as like a helpful tool, as the tools get smarter and smarter, because we use the term intelligence for artificial intelligence, but I think it just gets more and more useful, more and more helpful. Uh, I think if we look at it as a helpful tool with appropriate guardrails and people learning prompt engineering and learning to use and harness the tools to make themselves better, ideally that's a move forward for everything, yeah. for everyone. Uh, and we can all see uh, you know, making more creative and more impressive projects in less time than ever before, just because we know how to use the tools at our fingertips. It starts small, like I, as a, you know, a video editor or a photo editor, like it started with like a little button in the corner of Pixelmator that would help me use AI to sharpen a blurry photo. Like it starts really small like yeah. that. But by the time you get to this macro scale of like these tools get incredibly smart and incredibly useful, 
Uh, I'm, I'm gonna be making hopefully videos that are incredible to five years ago me. Yeah. Because the tools are so much better. That's my hope. Oh, you mean visit the younger Marquez? Maybe, the, maybe it helps us visit older versions of ourselves and show us cool <laughs> projects. That would be sick too. You know, I see we have a minute left. I did want to ask you, since you're a content creator, you know, Adobe released Firefly, and I can't get enough of generative fill. I wanted your thoughts yeah. on the technology. It's super cool. I, it, again, it started small. You saw uh, content-aware fill in Photoshop for years. It's, yeah. it, was, it was already a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And photo, Adobe's been working on this over and over and constantly making it better and better to the point where it's been trained so many times on so many photos and so many actions yeah. by so many people that it's dramatically more useful now in this you know, generative fill thing than it was like five years ago when I like circled somebody in the background to delete them and it would yeah. like draw another weird blob and I just wanted it to go away. Like it's, it's much better than it's ever been. So that's exciting. Well, it's been such a thrill to be on stage with both of you guys. Please join me in thanking them. Thank you all for coming to Collision. Have a good night.